fourth century Numatomachian controversy and a pro-Nicene vision of the Spirit. Before we get into this, um, let me pray for us. Uh, let me pray for us. Um, the more classes that you take from me, uh, we will do this periodically. Um, so really before we sort of dive in wholesale, um, just want to do kind of a quick spiritual exercise uh, together. Um, go ahead and just kind of set things aside. Uh, uh, close your eyes in kind of a posture of prayer. Um, you yourself uh, begin praying, um, giving thanks for today. This is sort of kind of a moment to cast your cares upon the Lord. Ask him to bless your life. Ask him to bless those that are around you, whom you love. Confess sins. Confess our own shortcomings. Stay in a posture of prayer as we read the scriptures, as you hear the scriptures. Pray the scriptures as you hear them. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in all that he does, he prospers. And yet the wicked are not so, but are like chef that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment or sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous ones. But the way of the wicked will perish. O oh God, we pray and ask for your blessings in our life. Be ever near us as we read the scriptures, as we think through 
the life of the church. We give you great praise and honor and thanks that you have preserved her, your church, 2,000 years, that you're gracious to us as we sin against you. Help us. Help us to be the blessed person. Help us to be the happy person that is anchored and rooted in your scriptures, planted by the stream. Bless us, O Lord, we pray. Amen. Okay, introduction to the Numatamakian controversy. Go ahead and open up uh, in your scriptures to 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Have a finger open to 1 Corinthians 2 as well. We'll read that in a moment. What I want to do is I want to read these two sets of scriptures sort of, sort of as an entryway, if you will, into discussion or to into kind of a, a couple of uh, uh, ideas about the Spirit as he's described in the scriptures. 1 John 4, verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. But this, or by this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the, world's list, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of air. Continuing down, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God has made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent us, sorry, sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
No one has ever seen God. We love one another. God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. So here, spirit of God is being talked about in terms of activities. A lot of here is what's the activities of the spirit of God. What's very interesting up there at the beginning of chapter, uh, the beginning of chapter four, how do we discern the work of the spirit? How do we discern the work of the spirit? It's built or predicated upon the confession of his children. Why? As John goes on, because God dwells in you. God dwelling in you is the spirit. And then it starts talking about this concept of love. How interesting, oh, Augustine. How does Augustine understand the spirit? It's the love that binds the father and the son eternally. He calls the spirit love. And he gets it from this. So how interesting, verses 1 to 6, you see this very active life of the Spirit, see this very active life of the Spirit, allowing his children to confess that Jesus has come in the flesh. And then all of a sudden, John turns to this notion of love. Spirit seems to be missing, and it's only the Father and the Son in relation to one another. And then he caps it off. By this we know that we love because the Spirit has been given to us. There is a kind of a dance here, if you feel it, between the concept of love and the presence of the Spirit. Over at 2 Corinthians, or sorry, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, look at verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depth of God. I think we qualify illumination, only get to the divine authors as they were inspired to write. Illumination is an ongoing activity of the Spirit. Spirit who reveals to you the deep, the depths of God. Verse 11 for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us. In other words, in other words, only the Spirit can understand the deep things of God. Only the Spirit can comprehend the Father 
Paul turns a corner. The Spirit's in you, therefore, you can know the Father. The work of the Spirit is to illuminate our understanding of knowing the Father. Verse 13, and we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. For the natural person does not accept things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. Why? Because the Spirit of God does not dwell inside that person. Verse 16, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. What's the mind of Christ? The Spirit of God who dwells in us. Do you not see? I hope you now read Scripture with new eyes. That's what I'm hoping. I hope you saw in the first John text and the first Corinthians text what I want to try to put in front of us, Trinitarian exposition. You saw at play in both texts how the Spirit is involved in the Son, who's involved with the Father, and it then engages with humanity. It's by means of the Son in both of those texts, sorry, by means of the Spirit who indwells us, that it now enables us to know God, illuminate, and now to participate in the life of God. The Spirit is the connector, if you will. So I only wanted to look at those two texts to show you that those are only two pneumatological texts, two pneumatological texts in the resources uh, for early Christian theologians, and I would say even us as theologians. These are a few resources for us to draw from as proof texts to try to understand big picture what's happening with the life of God. So I want to sort of raise a couple of questions. Who is the Spirit, and how does the Spirit relate to the Father and to the Son? Let me say that again. Who is the Spirit? Singular identity, personal property. Who is the Spirit? Second question, how does the Spirit relate to the Father and to Son. Both in local church settings, um, let, me, let me say this, more in church settings than in my scholarship avenues, people in the local church just sort of to do with the Spirit. The Father and the Son are sort of easier to grasp because I am sure at somewhere in your local setting, your local church gathering, there's a father and there's a son. So like you have like this general visible picture. So therefore you take this human example, foisted up upon, uh, uh, upward uh, upon God. What do we do with the spirit? <clears throat> May the force be with you all. <laughs> it's like this vague concept. We don't know what to do with it. And uh, I have a hunch that uh, many here 
have a very Star Wars-esque pneumatology. Like it's this odd movement of the Father. May the force of the Father be with us. May the force of the Son be with us. As if it's this force. Uh, however, let's work through a couple items here. These are going to be a number of items that we will work through. Why was the Spirit of God debated in the early centuries of the church? Why was the Spirit um, debated? First off, theological controversy swirled around paterology and Christology. Namely, the doctrine of the Father and the doctrine of the Son comprised the majority of the controversies early on. Dr. Wilhite, do you have an example? Yes. Justin Martyr, Dialogue with Trifo. Trifo's a Jew. Justin Martyr is an early Christian apologist. Who do they debate over? The son. Who do they not debate over? And when the other person speaks about the spirit, do they correct one another? They don't. Michelle Barnes has written a phenomenal article on the Jewish symmetry of pneumatology. In the second century Christians, they were still assuming a Jewish background of a vague spirit. Really, the debate circled around fatherhood and sonship. Second, early Christians were still unclear in how to address personhood. What does it mean to be a person in the Trinity? The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. But yet, there are not three gods. So this whole distinction within pro-Nicene thought is a distinction between person and nature. So how do we define personhood is um, uh, uh, up for debate with early Christian theologians. Let me just sort of throw this out there. Let me throw this out here. Uh, uh, I was going to pick on, so I'm not going to pick on anyone. Let me just throw this out there. Pastor so-and-so, ministry leader so-and-so. I hear a lot in Christian theology books, God is described in, as a person. Uh, what does a person mean and how can God be a person? You would say what? Please don't think I just pulled that out of thin air. I'm asked that question all the time in my local settings. How is God a person? How is God a person? Sure. What are they doing? Are you saying God, God in general or, or the specific God the Father? I am not, I'm not asking the question as a professor. I'm trying to dumb down the question where often questions are asked, totally conflated. <laughs> right? I hope you heard that. Yeah. yeah. Go so go ahead. God has a personality. God is someone you can talk to. God is not a person because God is one essence. It's the essence when we talk about the oneness of God. 
When we talk about God as three, that's where we then talk about personhood. So what does it mean then for God in terms of personhood? What, is, what do we mean by that uh, language? You're, you're dipping into it. What does it mean to be a person? Goodness, can I tell you how interesting this is? Because it can't be, yeah, it can't how be a physical body. Yep. Because we know God is a spirit. Yep. So personhood is does not mean corp, corporality or cor, a corporal being. Three beings that can interact with one another. I want to actually go back to a first uh, earlier term you used, personality. Personality is very important here when we start talking about personhood. Personhood is uh, uh, what when we start talking about individual personal properties. Personality is going to be brought in. Uh, there's relation that is then brought in. These are relational categories as well. Then there are individual activities proper to each person. So let me just throw this out there to UO theology students. Uh, figure out how to define personhood, the personhood in the Trinity. Uh, third, if the Spirit is the third person and debate centers around the father-son relationship, then as father-son confusion ensued, so would the father-son-spirit confusion therefore emerge. In other words, in other words, because debate circled around father-son language, if debate concerned that, and early Christian theologians were trying to get together person one, person two language, then of course, person three, there's going to be confusion all around that. So let me get a running mantra for us. To describe the son errantly would inevitably lead to an errant view of the spirit. In other words, to get the son wrong de facto means you will get the spirit wrong. To get the son right, to get the son right, you then are set up to get the spirit right. Goodness, as I'm seeing this next line, I still believe it. Pneumatology is inherently Christological. Here's the reason why I say this. I'm getting ready to write an article uh, with a dear, dear friend, um, dear friend, uh, and she wants to say pneumatology is not exclusively Christological, but is rooted in the doctrine of creation. I, I disagree. Pneumatology is Christological. So let me just go ahead and beat a dead drum. Is there a pro-Nicene, or can I now introduce a term for us, pro-Constantinople definition of the spirit? Is there such thing as a pro-Nicene definition of the spirit? Because up to this point, pro-Nicene has typically been about the son and the father. 
you have person nature distinction, you have eternal generation of the sun, you then have inseparable activity. So first, nature and person distinction. If the son possesses equally and without division the nature of the father, then the spirit possesses equally and without division the nature of the father. This is where we get X of X language. Whatever the father is, so is the son in terms of qualities. And the father is not the son, the son is not the father, and the spirit is neither the father nor the son. Second, eternal generation and procession. If the son is eternally generated from the father, then the spirit is eternally proceeding or, or what theologians call spirating eternally spirating from the Father. So the Son and the Spirit have no temporal origin as if there was a time when they did not exist. So in other words, if eternal generation can apply to the Son, then eternal spiration applies to the Spirit. See what I'm doing here? I'm trying to make that consistent. which then leads us to the third item, inseparable activities. Inseparable activities. Because the Father, Son, and Spirit co-equally, co-eternally, and indivisibly share the same nature, they therefore have the same will and act in relation to such a will. We've sort of already been hinting about this, especially last week. It felt like last week we're starting to circle in on what does inseparable activity look like. Yep. I really hope what this class will do for you is at an introductory level, tell you that these words exist, and then you'll continue to flesh out what this looks like. I want to show you something. Do you notice a substantial difference about Article 3? Look at this substantial difference. Nicene Creed 325, the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. The question is why? Why this update, right? Why this update? What caused the clarity? I don't want to say it's just one item, so please don't hear me do a quick sweep of the hand. But why this update? Because the Constantinopolitan Creed is essentially word for word with Nicaea except here. Why this update? After 325, Christology is starting to, uh, is still being debated. But what do we do with heterodox people still discussing this clause? 
So now get the adage, get the mantra. To get the sun wrong inevitably leads to an errant view of pneumatology. To get the sun right sets you up to get the spirit right. Doesn't guarantee it. Doesn't guarantee it. Sets it up to get it right. Why? Tropicoid. Tropicoid generally get the sun right, but they call the spirit a son of the father as well. They, they call the spirit a second son. So there's a confusion of personhood. They don't get the clear uh, personal properties of what the spirit consists of. But for the most part, they're at least moving in a general direction of good Christology. I'm not going to call them that they have good Christology, but it's at least they're getting big pillars that are moving in a helpful direction. Okay, so let's kind of dive into this why. This, I'm trying to set up the big why of, the, of pneumatological debates. Pneumatological debates. Uh, if you look at the articles that I gave in the packet, right, you have all of these sources, right? I, I, every source that I'm going to talk about, you have. The early beginnings of pneumatology is really interesting. It's really interesting. I already hinted at it in the second century. Early Christians still had a Jewish pneumatology. So as Christian Jewish engagement of what to do with the Old Testament, their arguments were always related to Christ. What do we do with the two messiahs? Uh, that's one of the hearts, uh, uh, one of the main arguments in um, uh, uh, dialogue with Trifo. But they don't debate about the spirit. It's led some to suggest that even the second century, there's still a Jewish understanding of, of pneumatology. Uh, Michelle Barnes, Michelle Barnes uh, and Lewis Ayers walk through this history. If you read Kyle Hughes, Chris, uh, if you read Kyle Hughes, I believe the two of you are the only ones that are doing this topic. I don't know who else is doing pneumatology. His first chapter walks through this. Like, what is the story of pneumatological development, and it's this threefold. Jewish backgrounds of the second century, third century monarchianism, third century, uh, sorry, uh, fourth century pro-Nicene theology. Let's go on down and start talking about Athanasius. Athanasius. Let's get a big, broad social context. Big, broad, social context. Athanasius, as you know, was at least deemed associative with Nicaea. After its composition, he was amongst its greatest defenders of the pro-Nicene agenda. Uh, he writes numerous books against the Arians, Contramundum, uh, what a book to be called, to call it Contramundum. Someone translate that for me. Against the world. <laughs> Could you imagine like your motto's Contramundum? Oh man, like what a head you have on you. Um, but near the end of his life, he is put into exile numerous times. Letters to Serapion, letters to Serapion, 
occurs in Athanasius's third exile. Third exile. So you can sort of see the dates. We are 30 years removed from Nicaea. 30 years removed. Uh, he's yet to write De Decretis, which is a defense of Nicaea. That will come later in 360. Most likely, I think, Letters of Serapion predates the De Decretis book, where he defends the, the creed. So this book, Letters to Serapion, generally assumed to have been written 358 to 359. It appears that a letter drafted by the Council of Alexandria in 362 drew from Athanasius' letters in the so-called Tomus ad, ad Antiochinos, the tome to the Antiochs, Antiochians. It says this, to anathemize the Arian heresy, confess the faith confessed by the Holy Fathers at Nicaea. So again, this is 30 years after Nicaea. And anathemize those who claim that the Holy Spirit is a creature and separate from, uh, separate him from the substance of Christ. For a complete repudiation of the loathsome heresy of the Arians consists in this, not dividing the Holy Trinity and not claiming one of the Trinity is a creature. For those who pretend to confess the faith confessed at Nicaea while daring to utter blasphemies against the Holy Spirit, do nothing more than deny the Arian heresy verbally while retaining it mentally. So this, these are some core arguments in the letters of Serapion. These are some core arguments in the letters of Serapion. Most likely then, this council in 362 is drawing from the ideas therein. Also says this, the Holy Father is not, or the, sorry, the Holy Spirit is not a creature, nor is he foreign to the substance of the Son and the Father, but rather he is proper to it and inseparable from it. So these two items, uh, these two quotes right here, what do they do, right? Why, why do this? This is also trying to show historical theology develops. To do good historical theology, you need to have done good history. You have to know how to anchor things. You have to know how to anchor items. Since this creed, sorry, since this council meets in 362, Drawing from themes in the letters of Serapion, it most likely provides as a terminus, uh, a terminus, uh, oh my goodness, not antiquim, not antiquim, terminus quim, come on, what's the word? It's the final date, nothing beyond this. This is at least telling us that the letters of Serapion are written prior to this council. Let's just talk real quick. Um, before we dive into the, to the actual 
letters themselves. Uh, we're going to take a break like in two minutes. I'm going to take a break real quick. But let's, let's quickly talk about how to do good history and how to do good retrieval. Keep in mind, now that we're this deep into it, if you remember back to lecture one, where we talked about beginning a life of reading the fathers, uh, it's really important not to cherry pick the arguments of the fathers. I, I would qualify myself uh, as, a, as a, um, a proponent of what the, it's a French movement of ressourcement, ressourcement, the retrieval movement. One of the concerns that I have for retrieval theology is cherry picking the fathers as a pea shooter argument for modern debates. Part of good retrieval has to have good anchoring in uh, history. So to do retrieval, we need to be good historians first. To do good retrieval necessitates that we're good historians first. The fathers have their own theological world, their own philosophical agendas. And our goal is not necessarily to relive, not necessarily to relive uh, what it was like to live in the fourth century, but to also live not ignoring to actually do a very good and close reading of the fathers. So as we, I, I will argue for, I think we should sound like Athanasius when we talk about the spirit. I will try to argue that we should sound like Basil when we talk about the spirit. But at the same time, we have 21st century concerns that they have no clue about. So as we do retrieval, or if you do retrieval, Make sure that it's anchored in good history first prior to cherry-picking small quotes. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's take a quick five, and then we'll come back to who are the tropicoi. Uh, I want to try to save this line uh, by the, until we get to uh, scriptural exegesis, but at least to prime the um, prime the pump, if, so to speak, for our talks on scriptural exegesis. If you if you've noticed thus far, the debates around Trinitarianism are just as much theological as they are exegetical. So the pro-Nicene era or the Trinitarian debates are just as much theological debates about ideas and debates about ideas as much as they are about how to read scripture. The tropicoi sort of feed in, excuse me, feed into that second idea. So who are the tropicoi? Athanasius seemingly uses this term without much explanation and simply assumes that Serapian would be familiar with the name. Athanasius writes to Serapian, who's a bishop, 
because people in his congregation and or around him are coming to him with these objections about the spirit. So I forgot to mention that Athanasius is here trying to support a bishop, Serapion, in a defense for the spirit uh, to others. So tropikoi, there is the Greek term that uh, Athanasius used, and it's a neologism. It's a neologism. In other words, it's a newly created term by Athanasius, by Athanasius himself to describe this group. And it's diminutive. It's, it, it's to mock them. Tropikoi refers to modes. Modes. At the base level, tropikoi as a Greek term, the lexical meaning simply means modes. Athanasius uses the term to, def- to refer to modes of exegesis. And really, this name reminds us once more that as much a theological debates were about theology and philosophical positions, theological debates were just as much a debate about proper exegesis. And so while Athanasius uses tropikoi, to describe this group, he does use the term pneumotomaguntes. You can read that Greek uh, to describe their actions. This term by Athanasius will develop by Basil himself to refer to the pneumotomachians. This whole debate is known as the Numatomachian controversy. Derives with the tropikoi. Didymus, the blind, has another treatise on the spirit that it'll encounter this type of debate. Then Basil on the Holy Spirit is sort of seen as the capstone to this discussion. So Athanasius... Athanasius summarizes the two central theological concerns in the opening section of letter one. He says this, For you, Serapion, were clearly upset, my beloved and truly most dear friend. And you wrote that certain ones who have withdrawn from the Arians on account of their blasphemy against the Son of God have nonetheless set their minds against the Holy Spirit, claiming not only that he is a creature, but that he is one of the ministering spirits. If you hear that, that's an allusion to Hebrews 1, and is different from the angels only in degree. So the two primary items... The two primary items that Athanasius recalls to Serapion are a heretical teaching that the spirit is a creature, and second, a heretical teaching that the spirit is among the angelic realm, even if to a slightly different degree. It it remains unclear whether or not Athanasius sees the tropicoid as an offshoot of the Arians, or if he simply notes the similar ideas between the two groups. While Arians deny the Father, 
deny the father by denying the son. The tropicoid disparage the son. Uh, oops, that is a typo. Disparage the spirit by disparaging the son. Modes of exegesis. I don't have a pen on me. That is a big typo. So one day I forget my my pens. You have a pen? Awesome. Yep. Thanks so much. That is a big typo. I can't disparage the sun by disparaging the sun. <laughs> Modes of exegesis. If you can tell, um, so I don't know how you develop notes for ministry. Uh, if you can tell, this probably gives you a hint of what my sermons look like. I'm a scripter, totally a scripter. It frees me up. Um, I don't feel bound to it. Um, uh, and honestly, honestly, it saves me um, great, uh, like a great sense of anxiety. I'm, I'm not the best preacher. Don't even claim to be even considered in that. I, I would view myself as very average, run-of-the-mill preacher, trying to do my best of elucidating the, the text. Um, but what um, a full manuscript does for me is that it actually makes me more personable on Sunday morning. Because I don't have to worry about how I'm going to start my sermon. So I get to walk in, you know, 30 minutes before a service, whatever. I get to have free conversations with people. Why? Because I'm not distracted thinking, oh my goodness, I got to remember my first opening line. I got to remember how I'm going to frame this. No, no, no. It's all written down. And so it actually frees me up to, to minister. Uh this is how I write it, but it'll be full paragraphs. But this is how I'll initially write it. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, just by means of uh, uh, a reminder, where I'm defining who are the tropicoi. Item number one, I want to describe how he describes their mode of exegesis in the Trinity. So, Athanasius's first argument links the exegetical concerns of the tropicoi and the entailments of their theological position. While the tropicoi, it's a diminutive term, right? Do you, do you know what I mean by diminutive? It's, a, it's sort of like a mockery term, something to make them smaller, something to make them smaller. It's a diminutive term from Athanasius. They do posture a certain mode of exegesis, a certain tropicoi. He says this, in order to respond to those who have been deceived about the Spirit through a certain mode of exegesis, as they themselves would say, it would be fitting for us to subject a few of their tenets to a careful examination. A certain mode of exegesis will lend towards their position. So just really to begin reiterating this, Trinitarian debates in the fourth century are just, about, just as much about debates about how to render exegetical problems and how to handle the texts. This is a really important reminder that theology is not just about philosophical debates. It's, it's on the ground debates about what to do with the scriptures and how to put the scriptures together. So it might be worth equating a closer relationship between the two. Trinitarian debates about theology are just as much about 
debates about scriptural exegesis. This should tell you why when I say my specialties more reside with Trinitarianism and scriptural exegesis. My, my, my next book uh, that, I'm, that I'm working on, it's taking forever, uh, which is fine, uh, but it's just taking a lot, of, a lot of work to do. It's on Cyril of Alexandria's use of scripture as he discusses the Trinity. So I'm trying to describe what are his scriptural moods? How does he use scripture? What, are, what is the grammar that he uses? Are there any scriptural lenses or any scriptural rules that he abides by in order to uphold his vision of the Trinity? And so Athanasius really renders their position stupid. He'll call it that. Renders it stupid that their exegesis of certain scriptures caused them to conclude that the spirit of the son is a creature. If they can affirm the unity of the son and the father, then why do they say that the spirit is not in unity with the son and the father by arguing as such, the Trinity is no longer a unity, but composite of two distinct natures. This is a normal line of reasoning within the fathers, a very normal line of reasoning. If at any point you say that the Son or the Spirit is created by the Father, de facto, it has a different nature. If the Spirit has a different nature than the Father and the Son, and we still worship the Spirit, you're now polytheist. That, that's a, that is a very normal line of reasoning for this. So this, this in turn, right here in the middle, this in turn renders the Trinity, this is Athanasius speaking, no longer one, but compounded of two distinct natures because the spirit, as they imagine among themselves, is different in substance. Athanasius describes their position in two manners. Either God is not a Trinity, but a dyad plus a creature, or God is Trinity, that ranks the spirit among the creatures. But both options end up dissolving Trinity. Athanasius regards the proper confession of the spirit as follows. Notice the use of prepositions here. Notice the use of prepositions. <clears throat> For if they were to think correctly about the word, they would also think soundly about the spirit. This is why I, I started with that adage. If you get the son right, it's at least setting you up based upon this right here. You can, you can hear how he's trying to set up his argument. I also want to suggest that good pneumatology is anchored in good Christology. I remember asking Lewis Ayers one time, because uh, Lewis is the one who um, coined for the whole field pro-Nicene theology. Uh, 2004 is when that term sort of came into vogue, his neologian. I asked him one time, I said, I said I, since pro-Nicene theology is really about the, the son and the father, I said, can, is it proper to, because I was like, I have a few questions about uh, the spirit. 
he interrupted me. He says, it's always Christological. <laughs> you got it. It's always Christological. Okay, that's helpful. And we'll see it. We'll continue to see it. <clears throat> All pneumatological discussions will be anchored in good Christology. I think it's a good practice. This is to revisit what are, what's valuable about the fathers. They remind us of first principles. First principles. Re remember, the church is a second principle. Right? Keep in mind what I mean by that. I don't mean that it's second in value. It's by no means what I'm talking about. Is there anything that precedes the church? Yes, the son who creates the church. So therefore, the son is the first principle of the church, a second principle. Does it, do, you, do you see that distinction? I just want to make sure I'm heard there. Okay. <clears throat> so good pneumatology is, is anchored in good Christology. <clears throat> For if they were to think correctly about the word, they would also think soundly about the spirit, who proceeds from the father and being proper to the Son is given by him to the disciples and to all who believe in him. This confession centers upon the theologia, the father-spirit relationship, and the oikonomia of the son-spirit relationship. What's really interesting about what this quote does it doesn't affirm the filioque. If you notice, procession is only from one person. He doesn't say he proceeds from father and son, but proceeds from father and then given to the disciples by the son. Second line of argument, the spirit belongs to the angelic order. Someone read for us 1 Timothy 5.21. It's going to give my, uh, my voice a quick break. Look over at 1 Timothy 5.21. Read it. Mm -hmm. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Who are the two persons of the Trinity mentioned in this text? God and Christ. God and Christ, most likely Father and Son. The Tropicoi read the third person of the Trinity is found in what realm? Angels. Do you see how they got there? I'm not saying it's right. I just want to show you how they got there. The bad exegesis. Bad exegesis. Yeah. I think it's bad exegesis. So in Book 1, Section 10, we observe Athanasius' first use of Tropicoi and combines two related features. So he comments upon the theological allegiance to the Arians, and they have ventured toward a new way of reading Scripture. Athanasius says this. If you want to follow along, I'm right here. Athanasius says this. But the tropicoi, true to their name, who reached an agreement with the Arians and divided between themselves the blasphemy against the divinity, such that the latter called the Son a creature and the former the Spirit a creature, have once again dared 
as they themselves would admit, to come up with their own modes of exegesis and misinterpret the saying of the apostle, which he flawlessly wrote to Timothy. His concern here, he links them to the Arians doing something similar. As Arians make the sun a creature, so the tropicoi make the spirit of creature. That's linking number one. That's linking number one. Then item number two that he does is uh, diminish uh, their mode of exegesis. The tropicoi and the Arians are similar in that sense, that they affirm the creaturehood of at least one person of the Trinity. Arians refer to the creaturehood of the sun. The tropicoi refer to the creaturehood of the spirit. Again, let me just be really frank with you. I don't know. Are tropicoi second-generation Arians? I don't know. I can't tell what Athanasius is doing. So is it like saying, oh, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. Connor's making a similar move to person X, right? It could be that, or it could be, oh, got it, got it, got it, got it. Connor is a second generation of person X. Do you see that subtle decision? I can't tell what Athanasius do. Just to sort of reveal my cards. So his vagueness uh, sort of leads to my vagueness on knowing how to answer that historically. <clears throat> Athanasius then comments upon the novelty of their scriptural exegesis and based upon 1 Timothy 5.21, in the presence of God and Jesus Christ. In other words, in the presence of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, that is, the angels. Right? That's the tropicoi argument. That's their, mo that's their mode of line and of reasoning there. So the tropicoi interpret this text to attribute the spirit to the order of the angels. If the text mentions father and son, then the third title would be assumed to be the spirit. This assumption by the tropicoi is a misreading of first. Five. Third line of reasoning. Dr. Is Willock. the spirit a son if he proceeds from the father? Right? Have you ever asked this question? Why is it father, son, and spirit and not father, son, and son? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Uh, in the Numantamachian controversy, they'll even call the father, the grandfather of the spirit, which then turns the son to the father to the spirit. So while Athanasius does not mention these concerns earlier, he does raise a third, he does raise a third concern about the tropicoi. It appears that Athanasius is quoting them from a previous correspondence. Quote, so this is Athanasius quoting the tropicoi. If the spirit is not a creature, nor one of the angels, but proceeds from the father, then is he also a son? And are the spirit and the word two brothers? And if he is a brother, how is the word the only begotten? How can they not be equal? 
but the one is named after the Father and the other after the Son, if the Spirit is from the Father, why isn't it also said that he has been begotten and is a Son, but is simply called Holy Spirit? If the Spirit is of the Son, then is the Father the grandfather of the Spirit? You can see the logic of the questions, and I hope you're answering them, you know, inside of you as, as we're reading these questions. So these hosts of questions reflect on the eternal relations between the three persons. If the Spirit proceeds from the Father, then why might the Spirit not be considered a Son as well? So it's sort of a logical inference here. It's a logical inference. The tropicoi raise a second concern of double procession in their final question. If the spirit is of the son, then is the father a grandfather to the spirit and the son a father to the spirit? Athanasius then responds to them with the charges of blasphemy and heresy. Alluding to Titus 3.10, he seeks to avoid them as heretics. So, a couple questions here. If we can provide kind of a, th a, a three lines of summary, who are the tropicoi? Three lines of summary. Summary number one, they're known as poor exegetes. Poor exegetes. Second, the spirit is a creature. Second, the spirit is a creature. Third, the spirit is considered an angel. The spirit is considered an angel. And fourth, poor relations among the persons. They can't properly define personhood. Any questions so far? Because what we're about to get into is then, rather than a deconstruction of the tropicoi, we're going to then see him provide a constructive theology of the spirit. Any questions so far? Yeah, go ahead. I wanted to ask earlier, like when you said how, how is the spirit related to the son as the son is related to the father? Like how you said disparaging the son, or the spirit is disparaging the son. And de denying the spirit is denying the sound labor. How so? Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, that's really good. Um, he's being good. Oh, it's a good day. When I say X of X, what does that mean? When I say X of X, what does that mean? This is a Nicene expression. What does X of X mean? Same of the same? Yeah. So light, yeah. the sun is light of light. Right? So whatever the father is, sorry. Nope, I didn't. I don't know. Whatever the sun is, it's derived of or from 
the Father. Acts of Acts is one way to describe son to father relations in terms of not activities, not activities, but um, uh, um, come on, come on, substance. But in terms of substance. It's son to father in terms of substance. X and X. Whatever the, whatever the father is in terms of substance, so is the son. All this does is now say this. It now says this. The spirit, even though this isn't in the creed, we could technically say this. So, if we disparage the spirit in any way in terms of substance, what we say of one, we have to say of all three. So, if we disparage in any way the substance of the spirit, it has a diminutive effect on one of the other two. That help me? And yes. Yeah, um, yeah. And also at the same time, what about like the spiritual relationship with the father? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Can I erase this? I really appreciate you asking that question. And I don't realize, I don't know if you know the gravity of that question. Um, to use the language of son and father, we use the language of generation. Generation, right? The father and son relationship. It's the father who generated the son, stated in the passive, the son was begotten by the father. Those two statements mean the same exact thing. It's just who's the primary agent. Is the son being acted upon or is the father doing something? It's the same activity. When we talk about the spirit, uh, we could use the term procession. Proset, uh, proset, yep, shun. Sometimes scholars will use the word spiration. Why spiring? To breathe out. Right? To breathe out breath. John 20. The sun spirated the sun. Right? That, or sorry, the sun spirated the spirit. Um, we can talk about the distinctions there. So procession. This is of the father and the spirit. Does anyone know where I'm headed? Yeah. Go ahead. The, old, Finish it. the debates between whether he just came from the father or whether he came from the father and the son. He proceeded from the father or just the father, the father and the son. That's right. So, Lee, I don't know if you noticed this. Your question, the closer and closer we walk to it, 
has divided Christendom for 1,500 years? In what way does the Spirit, the Spirit's generation, so to speak, the better word is the Spirit's procession, is it from the Father only, or is it from the Father and the Son? Uh, you heard Athanasius' argument a moment ago. The Father and Spirit proceeds, but the Son and the Spirit is sent. That's why I said that was theologia, and this is economia. Theologia is God ad intra character or uh, qualities and activity ad intra. Oikonomia is God acting outside of himself in relationship to the world. Right here, this is single procession. The Eastern Church is known as a single procession. What then divides this is what's known as the filioque. If I would have done all my lectures on filio on Christology, we would have touched a little bit upon the filioque. This is a Latin phrase. This is a Latin phrase in the Nicene Creed. The Latinists, which is the Western world, added this clause. The Spirit proceeds from the Father. Filio is son. Que is an enclitic and. And the son. Westerners affirmed the filioque, which is a double procession, Easterners provided a single procession. Now granted. Now granted. Someone look up for me real quick. OUP, Oxford University Press, the filioque. Someone look this up real quick. Give me the author. The filioque, Oxford University Press. A. Edward Shizinski? Yep. This is one of the best books on the historical controversy. Keep in mind, if you read this, he is an Eastern Orthodox patristic scholar. So he has a dog in the fight, and he wants single procession to win. Um, here's my best take at it. Here's my best take at it. So keep in mind, I can't fully answer this question. Because in the history of the church, no one has. So let me just be totally honest. Here's my humble, humble, humble attempt. Can we talk about the life of the spirit or the origin of the spirit, both in terms of odd intra qualities and odd intra activities? You tracking me? Odd intra qualities, odd intra activities. I think, I think single procession can exist, and I think double procession can exist. 
I think the Eastern and Western church have done this on the issue. They just, they're talking past one another because they don't have the language of theology and economia that's engaging this. So in other words, can the spirit proceed from the father odd intra properties because the son proceeds from the father alone odd intra properties. But now inseparable operations are at play. When one acts, all of them act. So in terms of the activity, it's primarily the father, but the son isn't that far behind. So I, I at some point want to try to talk about double procession. Now, when we're talking about the economia, from whom does the spirit proceed? I will send the spirit through the son. It's a double procession. In the economy, it's like a slam dunk that it's double procession. And I just wish people would see this. It's really not a slam dunk. I think John 16, John uh, 20, argue for double procession at the economy. It's a double procession at the economy. God odd extra. God odd extra. And then God odd intra. Gosh, if I can punt, you're going to watch me punt. I feel like it's 1.5 procession rather than double procession. I'm totally punting, honestly. <laughs> because I do see it as the Father, uh, uh, the Spirit proceeding from the Father in the same way the Son is generated from the Father. It's, it's a single act. It's a single act. <clears throat> and so we can say X of X. We say X of X. Uh, and then here we can say X of X in the same way, so single procession. But in terms of odd, is, is there such a thing as odd intra economy? Odd intra activities. And if we say yes, then I say it's double. So when was the filioque? When was that added by the by the Western Church? When was that added? Because uh, in the original creed that that was in, which was which one? Constantinople or yeah, not Chalcedon. Uh, it'd be Constantinople. Okay. Yeah. So when, it's, the, it's the Nicene Creed updated. The question of when did it enter? Because it wasn't in the original. It wasn't Constantinople. in the original. Okay. It wasn't in the original. Which is the whole problem with the Eastern Church against the Western Church. Like, why did you guys add this without another? That's right. Because it wasn't added in another um, council, yeah. right? The actual date, the actual date of when it was added, or was it added through another council? I don't remember. Sixth century. That's what I was going to say. Seventh century. Okay. It so was it's over added years later. Yeah, it's it's added after um, almost near the iconoclast controversy. Okay. This one. This is added. When is the Great Schism? Seven. A little bit later. One thousand what? Ten fifty. Okay. Ten fifty ish is the Great Schism. That's where East and West finally separate. There is a clear Eastern Church, a clear Western Church over this issue. Over this issue, uh, they have since reconciled. If we can talk about Rome and uh, not Tiberius. Uh, What's the river? It doesn't matter. There's a phrase. Rome and the Rome and the East finally sort of came back together eventually. 
over this issue, even admitting that they that they over were dividing, over divisive on this topic. But they've never come back into full communion. Never come back into full communion. Yeah. Nope. They have softened it though. Yeah. Yeah. Since the 1050. So wait, does this make things worse or does this help you? Yes and yes. I have more questions. <laughs> <laughs> worse, worse. So keep in mind, as we're talking, I am trying to balance, right? I'm trying to balance. This is pure historical theology. Like at the end of the day, I want to know what scripture says. Athanasius, great, but it is subservient, right? That's de facto. But also right here, we're now dipping into dogmatic theology, right? Can we do constructive theology? And I'm trying to balance both of what is good historical theology as it influences and shapes our constructive dogmatics. Go ahead. No, go ahead. You, had, you said you had more questions. Oh, um, I see the hands up, but like, for example, to clear up the questions of the uh, yep, tropicoid. Um, like, what's the difference between really, like, what really is the difference between procession and generation? Since it's all just from the father. Yep, yep. Personal properties. Okay, so let me let me paint the, the most obvious. Will we ever say the father dies on the cross? No, because death on the cross is a personal activity proper only to one person. Generation is a personal property of the son. Spiration or procession is only a personal property of the spirit. So we'll, we'll never say that the spirit is generated by the father because that's only given to the son. So we're gonna go is that okay? We'll go here. Then yeah. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead, Aaron. So the uh, so the West and East churches they they broke up because of they had difference of they were exegetically interpreting the scripture differently in terms of the Holy Spirit. Is that correct? That's a good. That's a good way to, to summarize it. Um, I uh, can I can I muddy the waters real quick? I really don't know theologically if they were that far off. Theologically, I, I think they were able to navigate the doctrine of the Trinity quite well. It, it's it was the addition of to the creed filioque of a double procession of the Spirit. Does the Spirit proceed through the Father alone? Easterns say yes. Or do, do the Westerns, are the Westerns right that the Spirit proceeds from the Father, filioque, and the Son? So I don't even know if it's a matter of exegesis at this point. That is purely a fine nuance of are they willing to suggest that the Son can proceed out from him, uh, the spirit. So I don't even know if it's a matter of exegesis at this point. The debate between the tropicoi and Athanasius, that is a matter of exegesis. Mm -hmm. okay. And can we, can we also say, I mean, if, if, 
because this pneumatology is dealing very closely to Christology, then could we just venture and say that they differ, the West and East, they differ in Trinity? Can we say that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that, now that is a, that's a good question. I think big picture Trinity, there's not a whole lot of difference. At the fine nuances of Christology, there is a difference. There is a difference. Brian Daly, who's doing Christology, Brian Daly's book will articulate some of the subtle nuances between Eastern Fathers and Western Fathers early on that highlight a couple different visions of the sun in, in terms of Christology. This is a, a poor uh, summary, but there's an Alexandrian vision of Christology. There's an Antioch vision of Christology that's going to be slightly nuanced, not about the sun eternal, but the sun incarnate. How do we talk about I was going to ask what the ramifications are between the two. Oh, man, I know it. What are they? Go ahead, name them. Well, I, I don't know. I don't see. I don't name them. That's the point. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> like I want to be super fair here. I don't know. Like this has caused people to like kill one another and, and start these huge crusades yeah. and cause empires to rise and fall. Like how? Why, why is that big deal? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because it, it just it seems like a matter of semantics rather than a matter of deep theological significance. That's right. It's That's all right. ad intra. So it doesn't it, apply to us at all. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but true, it doesn't apply to us. It's who, who we know. Right. But again, like I, I I don't know big picture what it communicates. What are the what's the full ramifications of a single procession versus a double procession? What are the full teasing out of that? I don't know. I, I legitimately don't know. Are there some are there some fathers that would try to address that? It, try to answer that question. Maximus the Confessor. Maximus. Yeah, Maximus the Confessor, because he's a seventh century theologian. He is considered the height of patristic Christology. So he's right in the heat of that debate then between East and West. Yeah, it, when we talk about the Golden Age of Era, we mean fourth and fifth century, where we're talking about Trinitarian clarity. The clarity of Christology doesn't come until the fifth and sixth. Oh, I'm going to create a, a scenario here that's going to get me in trouble later. Uh, Athanasius to Basil in the Trinitarian controversies is like Cyril of Alexandria to Maximus in the Christological. Right? Cyril is right at the beginning. He precedes Chalcedon. He precedes just a little bit. Uh, uh, his Trinitarian thought precedes just a little bit. Council of Ephesus, four thirty one. But Athanasius was early on involved in Trinitarian discussion. Cyril early on in Christological discussion. Basil and Augustine at the tail end of Trinitarian. Maximus the Confessor is a more mature patristic Christology. Uh, Jared and then Aaron. Um, so I'm, I, I did like pneumatology, I guess that was like the, what yeah. I chose to read and whatnot. Um, for Athanasius, he is a double, correct? Like we're talking in terms of like the proceeding. I think there's another time where he does come out double, 
the quote that I read earlier, it sounds like a single possession. Yeah, because I think um, when I was reading, um, it was either him or Basil, uh, when they bring up like Genesis and like the spirit of God being there, like before, like even creation happening. Um, so when that's like brought up, is he speaking, I guess, about like it happening before time began or has time already like began at that point? It's really good. It's really good. So when we talk about the generation of the son, we have to talk about the father doing an activity, bringing forth the son. In a human framework, we want to insert time. We want to ask the question, well, what was right before that? Nothing is right before that. If, if we're going to use time, because God is eternal, therefore we don't say God or the Father generated the Son. We say the Father eternally generates, present tense, the Son. It's an action that has always been happening. Go ahead, follow up. I'm waiting for it. Sorry. Um, yeah. <laughs> with that like in mind then, it's I guess I'm trying to get at it's hard for me to understand why they think it would be like single rather than double with it being eternal. Like it seems like if you go for like the single like idea route, you're almost putting a pinpoint in time because of yeah. how it kind of plays out. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Third uh third century problems. Uh, are both with uh, a hierarchy in the Trinity and what's called Sabellianism. Does anyone, what is Sabellianism? Modalism. Modalism. Those are the two controversies in the third, third century. So generation, the language of generation is trying to do a corrective to monarchy. The father rules and reigns over the other two. So generation then sort of sounds a little bit like it's trying to preserve the good items of monarchy by saying that all items derive out of the father. That's all that it's simply trying to communicate rather than uh, a time item or uh, some type of ruling item. But the single perception is still trying to hold forth or hold intention that all things derive from the thought. Aaron, go ahead. After this, we'll take a quick five. Um, I'm kind of confused as to as to the right. double procession and the single procession, how that pertains to pneumatology. Is it, because um, I'm, I'm trying to think of that as, because you, you said that pneumatology is closely linked to Christology and if, if double procession and single procession uh, is part of pneumatology, then if you don't get the, if you don't, if it, somebody doesn't figure out whether or not double and procession or whatever is correct or not, then they're hinging on not understanding Christology, right? And that has huge ramification, doesn't it? Sort of, double, pre pre double, double procession is inherently Christological. Single procession doesn't even include the son because it's the father straight to the spirit. So it's so the, the debate essentially is Trinitarian with a forward step of pneumatology. So single procession is 
the spirit's origins are where? Only the father, single possession. Origins of the father and the son, double possession. So the son is only involved in one of those equations, not both of those So you bring up a couple items that would prompt me. That's what pushes me to 1.5. I can't get around uh, odd intra inseparable activity and the X of X of X language. If, if the son is X of X, then the spirit is X of X with the father, then de facto X of X of X should work. Okay, let's go ahead and take a five minute break. Uh, because I love having these discussions right after lunchtime. And I'm sure we're all doing hot. Okay, let's take a quick five, go get a drink, and then we'll we'll come back for the last hour. In Athanasian Nicene vision of the Spirit of God. All right, Christological influence on the spirit's identity. I've already alluded to this. I've already alluded to this. The identity of this spirit is intrinsically Christological. This assertion does not aim to blur the lines of personhood, but correlates to the use of language. Among the many criticisms of the Tropicoi, Athanasius mentions their comparison to the Arians on multiple occasions. The Tropicoi rendered the spirit a creature as the Arians rendered the sun a creature. So to remedy such lines of reasoning, Athanasius anchors pneumatological language in Christological categories. This is a book about the spirit. And when you pick up this book, you're thinking, why does he have a full section on Christology? He says this, so if the spirit's rank and nature vis-a-vis the son corresponds to the sons vis-a-vis the father, how can anyone who claims that the spirit is a creature not compelled to think the same about the son? It's this that I get the X of X of X kind of language. He's, it feels like he's subtly doing this. That is, if our language about the spirit in terms of shared nature and eternal order is mirrored with the son's relationship to the father, then what we say about the spirit must correspond to what we say about the son. Thus, if we claim that the spirit is a creature, then we must also say that the son is a creature. It's one for one language. So he says this, for just as the son who is in the father and the father in him is not a creature, but is proper to the substance of the father, now, this is purportedly what you claim. So, too, it is incorrect for the spirit 
who is in the Son and the Son in him to be ranked the creatures or to be separated from the word, thereby destroying the perfection of Trinity. So the inner dwelling or the interdwelling of the sons, does anyone know this proper term? What is the mutual dwelling of persons and persons? The son is in the father, the father is in the son, the spirit is in the son and in the father. What is that? Does anyone know that theological category? It starts with a P. Perichoresis. Is that a familiar term to anyone? Perichoresis. The interdwelling of persons compels one to expel errant views of the spirit. So if the son and the father mutually dwell in one another, if the son is of the proper substance of the father, and if the spirit dwells in the son, then spirit's nature must be proper to the son and the father. Otherwise, according to Athanasius's logic, otherwise the spirit as a created entity, dwells in the Son and dwells in the Father. And for Athanasius, he'll say, there's no impious nature in the Father, so this can't happen. Athanasius then continues to describe how the Spirit is proper to the substance of the Son, while the Spirit is not a, create, a, create, a creature and is different than the substance of created things, Athanasius notes that the spirit is proper to the substance and divinity of the Son. And he says this, he, that is the spirit, is different from things that have come into existence and he is proper to and not foreign to substance and divinity of the son and so belongs or because of this he belongs to the holy trinity that's a pretty clear affirmation there of the divinity of the spirit and if you notice it's fully dependent upon x of x christology it's fully dependent upon x of x christology the Son has a proper substance that derives from the Father. Therefore, the Spirit derives his both substance and divinity of the Son, and that shared language then has to exist. This is why I'll, I'll on a regular habit say, what we say about the Spirit, we also have to say about the Son, uh, and now we're now hitting a third category. What we say about both, we now have to likewise say about Father in terms of qualities, not personal properties. Okay. In 125, Athanasius returns to the previous question of the tropicoid. If the Spirit is from God, why isn't he also called a Son. So Athanasius returns to this argument. By countering it, Athanasius anchors what is proper to the Spirit in 
the Son. As the Spirit is not like creatures, but is proper to the Son, the Spirit's presence is not foreign to God. So before considering Scripture texts about this concern, Athanasius raises a rather lengthy theological conditional inference. So bear with this longer quote. It's a conditional statement. If he, spirit, is not called a son in the scriptures, but spirit of God, he is said to be God himself and from God himself, as the apostle wrote. And if the son is proper to the father's substance, because he is from the father, the spirit who is said to be from God must be proper to the Son in substance. We tracking with that at 3.30 in the afternoon? (laughs) Jared says no. George says maybe. Andrew says we got it. Scriptures do not call the Spirit a Son, and according to Athanasius, the Apostle affirms that the Spirit is to be in and of God. This is why there's not two sons. You can listen to Athanasius' logic here. The scriptures don't call him son. The scriptures call him spirit. So then if these two premises are true, if these two premises are true, then the spirit is proper to the son in substance. Then Athanasius turns to the scriptures. And it's, it's, it is incredible what he does. It's just quote after quote after quote after quote after quote after quote after quote, after quote scripture texts. <clears throat> if the Son is wisdom and truth, then the Spirit's relationship to the Son is manifest in the Spirit being the Spirit of wisdom and the Spirit of truth. Additionally, the Son is the power of God and the Lord of glory. And so the spirit is is rendered the spirit of power and the spirit of glory. Do you notice what he's going to do here? He just did X of X logic. This is X of X logic. By by noting these connections, Athanasius likens titles of the son in an X of X relationship to the father and in turn, an X of X relationship between the Spirit and the Son to describe how the Trinity is complete in the Spirit. So from this line of reasoning, from this line of reasoning, the Spirit being proper to the Son and thereby proper to the Father, Athanasius describes the Spirit's role in soteriological adoption. In soteriological adoption. In the Spirit, the Word glorifies creatures, divinizes them, makes them sons of God, and and leads them to the Father. You did notice what topic we're not going to cover in this class. Patristic soteriology. Don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. 
This. Yes. Theosis is really hard to navigate. <laughs> why? This is why. <laughs> uh, to be fair, uh, when patristic soteriology is brought up, uh, traditional thinker, traditional reformed thinkers, traditional Protestant thinkers, they won't want to touch patristic soteriology. Uh, it makes sense. Uh, uh, but what I am trying to do is trying to show you there's a whole lot of other topics to talk about than just soteriology. And plus, I don't want to. This Trinitarian movement of humanity to God cannot be made possible if the spirit is simply other than what is proper to the Son and to the Father. If you notice, there's a story here. God the Father sends the Son, sends the Spirit into the world to redeem humanity so that the Spirit indwells the Son, or indwells creatures, ascends to the heavens with the Son to then be in the presence of God. This is a beautiful picture of salvation. It's a beautiful picture of salvation. It's different than justification. Let me just throw that out there. It is different than justification, but it's built into Trinitarian union. As the missions of God, the Father sends the Son and the Spirit into the world to redeem humanity. The Spirit indwells, and as the Son ascends after resurrection, so too humans then are with the Father. That's a beautiful image. That is a really beautiful image. So this Trinitarian movement of humanity to God cannot be made possible if the Spirit is simply other than what is proper to the Son and the Father. If what joins humanity to the Son is a creaturely spirit, then as Athanasius argues, then it's really another spirit that we need. This is where Edwards, uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, I'm, I might... I might be oversimplifying this, especially with Dr. Chun here, the Edwards Center. Um, I really appreciate uh, Edwardsian logic of God's own self-exaltation. If God glorifies another besides himself, then that other self is God. So God is self-orienting, self-exalting of himself. It's very similar. It's a very similar logic here in Athanasius. So it really, in noting the absurdity of this logic, Athanasius describes what is proper of the Spirit. He says this, And so the Spirit is not one of the things that has come into existence, but is proper to the divinity of the Father. Single procession. In him... The word divinizes all that has come into existence, and the one in whom creatures are divinized cannot himself be external to the divinity of the Father. In other words, in other words, if the Spirit is not of the Father, then what the Spirit inserts himself into, that entity cannot be divinized. 
Therefore, the spirit has to be of the Father. Go ahead. Yep. Yep. Oh, man. I know. I don't want to talk about it. And he's like, oh, that's great, right? Here's a problem, but wait. Here's what we think he actually is talking about. Yeah, fair There's enough. more like in the process of salvation, glorification, yep. which that would make sense. Yeah. If the Spirit's not God, yes. then there is no glorification yes. for the human soul. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, turn over to Second Timothy or Second Peter one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of the big theosis texts in the scriptures. I can't believe it. Uh, uh, let me. I'm gonna say something about our, our church real quick. Every now and again, we'll let a non-elder preach. <laughs> a non-elder preach this text. I don't know what we were thinking. Oh man. I joke around with the person who preached it, and he says, I know, I can't believe I was allowed to preach this text. This is theosis in the scriptures. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us is precious in very great promises. Now listen. Notice what it says. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. That's theosis. Which that makes it sound like what, what Andrew just said. Yeah. That you become. Like it's not that you are in this life in your sinful humanity. It's that once, once glorification is complete, once salvation is complete, uh, then... Yeah, I, I can understand this correctly or incorrectly. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. As um, in my 21st century mind, theosis sounds terrifying. Bunch of little, little gods walking around the earth. What, so. what in the world so. are we trying to believe yeah, here? Yeah, very much so. But I don't understand this context in this time period. Yeah, totally. And so I, I think it's very possible they're just talking about something different that doesn't register. Totally. In my so here's where we're going to get into trouble a bit. Theosis. Sounds really cool if it's glorification. If that's all that we're talking about. It's soteriological, right? It's the doctrine of salvation. If we're going to use a now, not yet kind of paradigm, theosis in terms of glorification is the not yet. Theosis in terms of soteriology is the now, right? He would say now. Right, but it, but it using that already not yet. It's not, but it's not perfected now. I don't think so. It's perfected in the not yet. I don't think so. Uh, yeah, and I, to 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 make this less frightening, we'll start using language of participating in the divine life. Prayer, in prayer, you participate in the divine life, which you're incapable of doing prior to justification and without the Spirit. And without that's the Spirit. right. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So theosis in sort of this sort of framework makes it impossible to not even have fellowship with God because God cannot come in contact with his creatures, mm -hmm. right? So theosis is a way uh, to change and alter nature so as to be with God. Mm -hmm. uh, Andrew hit it on the head. 
it's not little gods. No, no, no. Yeah. They, they'll never use that. Language. That would be the critique. It's always the critique, but it's never what they, how they describe it. It's theosis alters the nature, immediately joins us to the Father, so that we are divine, but not divine like the Son. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. We are not the Father. We're partakers of the Father. There it is. Yeah, yeah that's right. So, but. The other critique, though, in like Kenneth Keithley writes about this in our theology book, he, he's totally out on theosis because he basically agrees with it or disagrees. Disagrees with it. with it. He does not like the theosis idea. I bet, I, yeah, I bet. And he, he criticizes it as lending itself to pantheism. Um, oh, yeah. Wouldn't, I don't know if I would have gone there. Because he says that the Eastern Church has taken it so far sometimes into where it is, yeah. for all intents and purposes, it's pantheism. It's kind of mm. everything is God. Everyone is God. Yeah. Everything is, what's that? Every little God. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That feels like an unfair criticism. It, it's, it felt like that way yeah. to me, especially because theosis is so ingrained in Orthodox tradition. Yeah, it is. It really is. It, it really is. Uh, if I can kind of just throw this out there, um, I don't know if theosis is a boogeyman uh, as much as we want it to be. There are iterations of it that I'm really uncomfortable with. Let me just voice that, right, just so that everyone's clear. There are iterations of it. I do think, though, in the Reformed tradition, theosis is, should have remained a normal part of the Protestant tradition. Ready for this? Theosis in John Calvin by Todd Billings. Go to look up this book. Hmm. He'll look up at the origins of theosis in a Protestant heritage. It's wonderfully done. Theosis then is both soteriological and what other item? Eucharist. Hmm. Eucharist is a way that in a sacramental Calvinistic way participated in the divine life. So I'm, I'm only saying that not to say you then need to affirm that other than just to say theosis has been a part of one of many Protestant visions of soteriology. Does that, mm -hmm. does that come yeah. out balanced? Yeah. Okay. yeah. I just, it's really important on a couple items. I, I need to make sure you hear me clearly. Okay. Let's go ahead and yep. I'm going to end on this last section. <clears throat> Uh, so this is, uh, even though this is third, it's going to be the second item that we talked about. What, one of the things that, let, before I jump into this, I, I hope what you're, you're seeing methodologically, um, I hope you're seeing, not that your reflections need to look like my notes at all. Please don't. They don't need to, to look like this. But there is a reason why I put this up here, to, sh to give you types of models to do. You can see what I'm doing. It's me and Athanasius in constant reflection. Is this ready for publication? No, it's not. Tell me why. It's not fully edited. Is it the closest reading of Athanasius that other scholars have done? Right? I'm at least not documenting it. Right? I would then need to insert that to then be able to produce uh, uh, publications. But a lot of uh, your readings of patristic texts is much different than you doing a reading of the scriptures. Why? There are hundreds of commentaries on the scriptures. There is probably five articles 
on the letters at Sarap, right? The, the, the weight is so much different, so much different. <clears throat> so it's hard to find commentary material. That's why I'm trying to teach you how to become good readers of a primary text. So the Catholic, eternal, trinity, unmixed, indivisible in nature, and inseparable in operation. The Athanasius offers a rule of faith, a rule of faith that must be affirmed by the whole church. Otherwise, they commit heresies and are joined to heterodox groups. In 128, Athanasius anchors the church's foundation, Christian identity, and method of scriptural exegesis upon the doctrine of the Trinity, while the reformers, namely Luther, renders justification as the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. I actually think the fathers render the Trinity as the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. He says this. Notice the connection of a ecclesiology, and Trinitarian. Nonetheless, in addition to these arguments, let us also examine the tradition, teaching, and fathers, that should be plural, of the Catholic Church. Again, we are not even near Rome. I think we, when we dive into early uh, uh, interfaith polemics, how many times have you engaged with Roman Catholics that say, my heritage starts in the first century? But so does yours, O Protestant, right? So does ours. Um, so Catholic, it doesn't mean Roman Catholic. And so when a Catholic reads this, they'll be like, look, see? No, 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 no. You don't get to just move the goalpost, right? You don't get to change the rules of the game. This would be one of them. From the beginning, da, 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 which is nothing other than what the Lord gave the apostles preached, and the fathers preserved. Talk about a beautiful ordering of authority here. The, the Lord gives this doctrine. The apostles preached this doctrine, therefore inscripturated. What's the role of the fathers? It's an act of preservation, right? We do the same thing. This is us. On this the church is founded, and whoever falls away from it can no longer nor no longer be nor called a Christian. That's Athanasius right there. So as Luther says, justification is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. Athanasius, I think, would differ. Athanasius says, nope, it's the Trinity. In this opening line, we observe the origins of the church's understanding about God. The Lord Jesus Christ <clears throat> uh, da, 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 has provided this instruction. The apostles have proclaimed what they have divinely received. And the fathers of the church have preserved what has been handed down. Moreover, the doctrine of the Trinity is the church's faith, its foundation, and central to Christian identity. In 128, Athanasius describes the Trinity as a rule of faith. Given the importance of this section, I want to quote it in full. He says this, keep your eyes, 
or keep your ears peeled to the multiple articles. Article one, doctrine of the father, article two, doctrine of the son, article three, doctrine of the spirit. And notice how he describes both in terms of nature and activities. So the Trinity is holy and perfect, confessed in Father and Son and Holy Spirit. It has nothing foreign or external mixed with it, nor is it composed of creator and creature, but it is entirely given to creating and making. It is self-consistent and indivisible in nature, and it has one activity. Notice there, the single nature beckons for inseparable activity. The Father does all things through the Word in the Holy Spirit. In this way is the unity of the Holy Spirit or Holy Trinity preserved. And in this way is one God preached in the church who is above all and through all and in all. Above all, as Father, as beginning, as source, through all, through the Word, in all, in the Holy Spirit. It is not a trinity in name alone and in linguistic expression, but in truth and actual existence. For just as the Father is he who is, so too is his Word, he who is and God over all. And the Holy Spirit is not without existence, but exists and subsists truly. End quote. So in this rule of faith, we observe a number of items, namely the identity of God, the Trinity, and the appropriation of Trinitarian activities and the eternal relations of Trinitarian persons. I do find it interesting, though, his creed is built off what two texts? The Exodus I Am and the Trinitarian Confession of Ephesians 4. Have you ever noticed the doctrine of the Trinity in Ephesians 4? There's one faith, one Lord, one baptism, right? One God, one Son, one Spirit with activities. So quite similar to the Nicene, the final article in the Nicene Confession, Athanasius concludes this section with a warning of heretical deviancy. The Catholic Church must not consider anything less than these three persons, lest, lest she fall towards Sibelius. The Catholic Church must not consider anything more than these three, lest she fall towards Greek polytheism. Notice what he says. And that this is the faith of the church. Let our opponents learn from what the Lord sent the apostles and how he ordered them to lay this faith down as the foundation of the church, saying, God, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. When the apostles departed, this is how they taught and this is the proclamation for the whole church under heaven. 
The scriptures guide the church to teach and to proclaim the Trinitarian persons as central to the church's mission. I, I often think that the Great Commission is this activity that the church is aimed to do, but it's aimed to accomplish something. I think the Trinitarian persons help anchor the activities. It's a Trinitarian prompting for the church to then go. Any questions about his creedal confessions? Confession. Not so much a question as much a statement, I guess. But yeah, go ahead. It, um, I will say it kind of wrecked my previous like, like, you know, like theology and just like how I exegeted just scripture in general, um, where I'm like looking at like different verses and whatnot and like noticing the spirit when before, I mean, I just, I think kind of related it to the father. That's really good, Jared. I really appreciate you noting them. That's that's what I mean. Uh, that's what I was alluding to earlier. That I that I said. I hope you begin reading with new eyes. That you begin seeing things in the scriptures. You're just like, I didn't know that was there, and now I have new eyes to see such and such. I can't tell you. I cannot tell you um, uh, how many times this has happened. I remember teaching on the doctrine of the Trinity. Each summer, each summer I would disciple some, equip some of our, some of the people in our church. I would, uh, uh, the way that I go about this is that I'll begin praying when I have open space, like in between semesters, I begin praying ahead of time um, for the Lord to sort of prompt particular people for me to just ask. And I'll go up and ask them. I say, can I, can I just read this with you? Um, I'd love to be able to spend some time with you. Um, each summer I've done this, uh, each summer we'll read Trinitarian books. Uh, at times we've read theological orations. We read some of the Oxford, uh, articles that I, that I've prompted here. Uh, I've read Thomas Aquinas on the Trinity with people in the church. Every time we're done, here's the first question. I pray different. What should I do? Like, I, 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 am I supposed to pray towards the Spirit? I, am I allowed to pray towards the Spirit? Do I pray only towards the Son? Why do I pray? Have I always sort of prayed towards the I can't tell you how many times that question has been asked. Um, I, I legitimately think I, I need to spend time writing on that, that idea for our church. Do you, um, you have an answer for that? Because that's something I've been dealing with the last few days. Good. That's good. If X of X of X is true, and we believe in the appropriation of personhood, then yes, pray to all three. Oh, Father, I pray and ask that you bless me. Oh, Son, I give you great thanks for redeeming and for constantly interceding for me. Oh, Spirit, thank you for convicting. So praise the persons in accordance to their personal properties. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Jerry. Uh, you start reading scripture with new eyes and your spirituality has new eyes to see the doctrine of God. It might be venturing, but when Jesus there says, um, 
uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What Jewish meaning did he have of the Holy Spirit there? If it wasn't a Trinitarian indwelling of the Spirit for believers. Uh, I don't think we have to compel Jesus to have a Jewish rendering. Anyone familiar with Robert Lethem? Is that a familiar name? Look this up. Look up this book, Robert Lethem's Systematic Theology. Robert Lethem's Systematic Theology. His opening chapter on the doctrine of the Trinity is among the best chapters that I've read on how to begin framing and discussing the Trinity. He says there is a big difference then in your discovery of the Trinity than the Trinity being eternal in existence. So in other words, Jesus didn't have to grow in understanding of a development of the Trinity like we do. So when he's starting to talk about the Trinity, he is talking about eternal identity. His knowledge is full perfect of himself. Let's go. I yeah, guess go Matthew go. then writing it. Yeah, very much so. What, what? made him, Yeah, because he was, you know, first century mm-hmm. writing it. Mm-hmm. It didn't click yeah. for people for many more centuries. Totally. There's a progress of revelation. I even think there's a progress of understanding. Yeah. First uh, uh, Peter, First Peter one, the First Peter one. It. I think it can equally be applied to some of these New Testament texts. I don't know if all writers knew what they were writing, like to the fullest extent. Um, Peter sort of sets us up in a better position than he was, right? Second Peter uh, 1, the transfiguration. I was there. I got to see the glory, but you have something more sure. What is it? The prophetic word. So in comparison, would you prefer to see Jesus in glory once or have the scriptures and have them forever? He essentially says, you're better if you have the scriptures than if you saw him. That just blows my mind. I didn't like. I'm thinking. I actually want to see him, and then that just makes me a Jew. I want. I want signs and wonders to uphold my faith when he says I have something more sure. Scriptures. Any other questions? Questions up on the screen. Matt, we're doing okay. Jonah, we're doing okay. Any comments? Any comments? Aaron, Joe, we did okay. Any comments? Is all this stuff flying over your head? Are we doing okay? Daniel, Jared? Okay, Darren and Chris. Okay, good. Um, all right, well, let's go ahead and call it a day. Um, we'll do one more week on pneumatology. Next week, we'll do basil. Basil and pneumatology. And then we'll start diving into spirituality. Uh, and Dr. Coleman Ford uh, will join us. Um, uh, just a question. Nope. I'm good. I'm good. Uh, have a great week. Uh, uh, when it, oh, this is what I wanted. I knew there was something I thought I, I, I couldn't put a finger on it. Your packets are due when Sunday, midnight. Sunday at midnight. Those who turn them in by tonight, I'll give you 20 points extra credit. Um, the package. Packets in book review. Okay. Yep. Packets. Okay. Have a great night. Have a great rest of the day. We'll see you soon.